Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. My name is Aaron. If I've not met you, I get to be the pastor of our church. And we've been in a series in the book of John. And what we like to do is go chapter by chapter by chapter. And today we finally reach chapter seven. And so guys, thank you again personally for your prayers and your care for me as I was out of town and visiting my mom and dad as they're navigating lots of medical and health challenges. Guys, thank you so much for your care for my family. And I love being able to entrust uh, leadership to our church, to our other great leaders while I'm away. And so if you are a leader, thank you so much for your love and your investment and service for this uh, body of believers. Uh, While I was away, uh, my mom and my dad and I, we watched the Super Bowl. Did anyone watch Super Bowl? Yeah, when I was thinking about the Super Bowl, guys, uh, we fall into three categories of people when we think about the Super Bowl, okay? The first group of people are like the football fans. Is anybody like genuinely a football fan? Some of you are like, yeah, I mean, kind of. And so if you fall in this category, when you watch the Super Bowl, you were cheering for either the 49ers or the Chiefs, or you were watching it because you just wanted to watch a really good football game. And so you watched it, you're into it. You're like, oh, that's a bad play. And you're like all up on the TV. And if that's you, that you're a football fan. The next category is a little bit different. The next category is called the party people. They want to go to the Super Bowl party. They want to go to hang out. They like the food. They like the drinks. They love the funny commercials. That's when they start paying attention. They're there for the halftime show. They're like, oh, who's singing the national anthem? And they are 100% like Jenna, there for Taylor Swift. (laughs) Okay, then there's the third group, okay? That is the who cares crowd. Okay, is is that anybody the who cares crowd? Yeah, right, that's, yeah. I I think I knew who you were already. And quite frankly, you just don't like football if this is you. You don't get what all the excitement's about and you'd rather do anything else in the world than watch that game. And just like there are three groups of people that engage the Super Bowl, in today's passage, there are three groups of people that engage with Jesus. And each of those three people, he gives an invitation to and a warning. And those three groups of people are this. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. The three groups are the brothers of Jesus, the crowd around Jesus and the religious leaders, the brothers, the crowd, and the religious leaders. And guys, each of these three groups, just like when we think about the Super Bowl, they're they're searching for something. Either it's a good play, right? Or it's a good drink or food. It's good hangout. Or you're like, I could do anything else in the Super Bowl. These three crowds also were searching for something that was in the world. But that thing could only really be found through a deep and meaningful relationship with Jesus. And Jesus in this week seeks to point that out to each of those groups. So today, guys, we're going to spend time by looking at each of these three groups. And I hope that as you look at this, you might find yourself in one of those three groups. And so I want you to hear the invitation and the warnings that Jesus himself is is giving. And whatever you're searching for in the world, that is maybe offered to you in that, I want you to see that Jesus is offering you something better. So here's the first person that we're gonna look at here, the first group, okay? We're gonna look at the brothers of Jesus. And just to give you a heads up, guys, they're looking for significance. They're looking for significance, okay? The brothers of Jesus. So let's set the stage here for what is actually going on. 
Uh, Verse one tells us this in the text here. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee and that it tells us that he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, guys, the events of this chapter, chapter seven, take place about six months after the Jesus feeding of the 5,000 in chapter six. And guys, the heat is on because Jesus, again, just did this mass feeding miracle and some people loved him for it and some people hated him for it. And most of the people were just confused by him because they're like, is he God? Is he the Messiah we've been waiting on? No one's entirely sure, but everyone's eyes are on him. So in verse one, John tells us that Jesus won't go back to Judea because the Jewish leaders hated what he did because all their attention were on Jesus and not him or not them, not the Jewish leaders, which we're gonna unpack more of that, why that was a problem later. So for about six months during this time, Jesus went about Galilee, verse one says, and he's preaching and he's teaching as a Jewish itinerant minister would do during that day. And while he's around his hometown, the brothers of Jesus get word that his following is dwindling quite a bit. And some ancient version of TikTok or a reel or something went viral, his brothers get word of it in chapter six that Jesus said these words, unless you eat of the flesh of the son of man and you drink his blood, you have no life in you. And that message gets to the brothers and all the people were freaking out because of their misinterpretation of what he meant. And those crowds of thousands dwindled down to a pretty low number. And when Jesus reaches step, the front steps of his house, the brothers of Jesus began to mock him for that dwindling crowd. The brothers say in verse three, they said, hey, leave here and go to Judea for the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. And which was essentially, there was a thousands of more people that were gathered, which we'll get to the feast more next week, but keep going with me. And so they're like, maybe your disciples and others can see all the works that you're doing. And then you can grow your fan base back up. Guys, in these words, you can kind of feel a mix of mockery, can't you? They're like, oh, if you want to grow your crowd, you should go to Judea and do all your stuff and get your crowd back. So they're kind of like mocking him here, but they're also trying to give them like a marketing strategy, seemingly just to kind of tease Jesus. They're like, hey, bro, if you want to be famous, we got to work on your TikTok game here because what you said like didn't work out well. So let me just tell you what you need to do. Guys, for in their words here reveals that they had worldly logic. Worldly logic in verse four, it says, they're telling him, for no one who works in secret, if he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, they say, show yourself to the world. Verse five then says, for not even his brothers believed in him. And guys, right here, we see where the brother's misunderstanding happens the brothers misunderstand the very heart and motivations of Jesus. Guys, they think that Jesus wants to be rich and famous. And they think he wants to find his significance through worldly success, which in fact is actually what they wanted to find in the world themselves, these brothers. And so they wrongly assume that Jesus wants to do that too. In fact, this is why in verse four, it tells us that they thought that he was just seeking to be known. 
They thought he wanted to gain notoriety and popularity. I mean, after all, his dad's a carpenter. So all these boys and the brothers kind of grow up and they, they want significance. And they're like, man, Jesus is getting this. And finally his crowd dwindling. So they begin to mock him for it. Like, well, you should just go here and show yourself to the world, Jesus, because that's what you're doing anyway. And they're mocking him. And they especially think Jesus wants to be well-known because remember that crowd of 5,000 in John chapter six, that crowd wanted to make Jesus king because of what he did. And that created a bit of jealousy and mockery in the brother's hearts. Guys, they desired as well to be significant in the eyes of the world. But as Christians, we know that true significance is found in the one who actually created the world. Church, if you find yourself jealous and envious of the status or the success of others, guys, you don't need to seek it through your job or through more money or through comforts or trips or adventures. Guys, find significance knowing just how significant you are that Jesus loved you enough to create you. And then he lived perfectly in your place. And then Jesus takes your record of sin and he goes to the cross and he dies for you specifically, Christian. And then he rose for you so that he could, by his spirit, draw you to himself and give you life. Like that's how significant you are. Your job, your boss, maybe even your loved one, they wouldn't die for you. But Jesus himself proves your significance by living, dying, and raising for you so that you could be with him. That's what makes you significant. And the brothers missed it. They thought the eyes of the world on them would make them valuable. But it's the fact that Jesus took his sin, our sin, and put it on him. That's what makes us valuable. Amen. That's what the brothers are missing here. This is where the true, unshakable, unchangeable significance comes from. And guys, we've got to hold on to this in Boston. Because isn't that why maybe many of you came here? You came to Boston because this is the headquarters of medicine, education, research. This is the Judea that you're supposed to go to and prove yourself and show yourself to the world. And let's not be like these brothers saying, I've come to Boston to make a name for myself, to prove to my mom and dad, my grandparents, someone that look at who I am now because of my degree or because of how I climbed that ladder, how much money I make. For that's an unshakable, well, that's a shakable foundation. We need something more sturdy than a job that we might get removed from. More than money that might go away one day, more than a relationship that might fail. We need something more unshakable. And Jesus is saying, look to me. Look at how I value. Look at how I view you. Look what I've done on the cross. That's what proves your value. You don't need to go to Judea. You don't need to go to Boston to prove your worth and value. Does that make sense? We've got it. We've got to receive that deeply of what Jesus is getting at here. So church is right here that we see the first of two things that we learn from the brothers. And it's this, guys, when you misunderstand the very heart of Jesus, you will dismiss the very person of Jesus. Let me say that one more time. When you misunderstand the very heart of Jesus and what he's doing and what he's saying and what he's getting at, if you misunderstand the heart of Jesus, you will dismiss the very person of Jesus. Guys, the brothers wrongly thought that Jesus was just about fame and greed 
or as Good Charlotte, one of my punk rock bands of the old days, the Rich and the Famous song, right? That's what they thought Jesus was after. And therefore the brothers were like, there's no way he's God because he's after greed and he's after fame. Because what? They misunderstood the deeds of Jesus. They misunderstood what the point of the miracles were. They thought it was about his fame, but no, it was about pointing to the fact that they needed a savior that could satisfy their souls. And because, listen, because they misunderstood his deeds, they ended up rejecting his deity. And church, how often do we see folks do the very same thing? People will say, hey, if God was real, then why does he allow evil to exist? Since evil exists and he allows it, that's his deeds, then therefore he's not deity. There must be no God. We do the same thing today that these brothers did. Or people will say, if God was real, then why doesn't he just show up and make himself known to me? Or people say, if God was real and he was good, then why do some people end up going to heaven when other people, they go to hell? And because they, sometimes me, sometimes you, because we don't understand the heart of his deeds, sometimes we end up rejecting the truth of his deity. And we begin to deconstruct from the faith. We're like, there's no way there could be a God if all these church leaders are falling and all this has happened, the evangelical church, or all, there, must, there can't be a God if evil exists. We look at his deeds and we're like, God, why didn't you do or why didn't you do or not do this thing? And because I don't understand your deeds and I reject your deity, there must not be a God. And guys, we can't fall into the trap that these brothers have set. There's gotta be a different path. Guys, that's exactly what happens in verse five. It says, for not even the brothers believed in him. Guys, this even happens for Christians as well, Okay. It's not just the world on the outside. It's us here on the inside. Guys, you might be tempted to think in this room, God must not be real because he didn't answer my prayers like I thought he should. Or God might not be real because he didn't provide for me or protect me in the ways that he should have. Or you think this morning that God must not be real because he's allowed some hardship to happen to you. And so what Jesus does for you in this room is compassion. He reminds his brothers and he reminds you of something in verse 24. He says, do not judge by the appearances of what you can see with your eyes. You must judge with right judgment. Which means, church, he's telling you, do not dismiss the person of Jesus because you don't understand the heart of Jesus and what he's doing and why he did do or not do something that you thought he should have done. For Isaiah 55, 8, 9 teaches us this church, your thoughts are not God's thoughts and neither are your ways his ways, declares the Lord. For as heavens are higher than the earth, his ways are just higher than your ways and his thoughts are just higher than your thoughts. For when you don't understand the ways of God, we must be like the apostle Paul that I remind you of, I feel like in every single sermon in Romans 8, that all things work together for good, Christian. All things means good things and bad things and sad things and hard things. He works out all things for your good, Christian. Why? Because God is loving and kind towards you and he promises 
to take every bad and make it work out for your good. Or as Pastor Charles Spurgeon once said this great quote, listen, God is too good to be unkind. He is too wise to be wrong. And when we cannot trust his hand, we must what? We must trust his heart. And that's exactly what Jesus is telling his brothers and what he's telling you this morning, church. If you're in a season, friends, where you can't trace God's good hand in your life and you don't know what he's doing and things seem out of control and everything's working against you, you can trust that his heart is good towards you even if your circumstance is not so good. You can trust that he will work out everything for your good. So the first thing we learn from the brothers is don't dismiss the very person of Jesus just because you don't currently understand the very actions of Jesus. Just because you don't understand his deeds because he's higher than us and we want a God who's got grander thoughts and plans than we can imagine. Let's not reject his deity just because we don't understand his deeds, amen? The second thing we learn from the brothers is this. And it's a little Dr. Susie, but hang with me. I got, I got a couple cheesy things today. Y'all just take it. I spent a lot of time with my kids recently over the vacation. So just hang with me, okay? Just channel the inner child and let's work together, okay? Here's a cheesy one, right? Second thing we learn is proximity to Jesus does not mean unity with Jesus. Proximity to Jesus does not mean unity with Jesus. Listen, church, I just want to be frank with you. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm not trying to be mean this morning. Just please hear my heart. Guys, just because you grew up in church, you read the Bible some, you've prayed before, you have relatives who are Christian, or maybe even you got baptized as a child. I just want to be honest with you guys. That doesn't make you a Christian. Those actions is not what brings you to heaven. Proximity to religious things doesn't make you right with God. For Ephesians 2 tells us that it's by grace that you're saved, which that means it's a gift. You don't earn a gift. A gift is given to you. You're saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2 tells. This is not your own doing. You don't earn your way to heaven and to God. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works or deeds or religion so that no one may boast. Guys, listen, if anyone should get to heaven by proximity, it's the brothers. Jesus' brothers had full, close, intimate access for Jesus for 30 years. Imagine you sitting at the birthday table and everyone else remembers the day that they were born. And then as Jesus turns, he's like, uh, I had a virgin, I was part of the virgin birth. And you're reminded of the miraculous conception and birth every time it's your birthday or his birthday. All the time. And they missed it. They were close in proximity to Jesus. But again, proximity does not mean unity. They needed to actually trust that Jesus was not just their brother, but that he was the only way and the truth and the life, as John 14 tells us. And that no one goes to heaven except through faith in his perfect life, his death on the cross, and his literal resurrection. And friends, we are no different we be very honest with our church that we are no different. Don't let proximity to Jesus and religion and morality make you think that you have unity with God. 
Guys, please do not trust in the filthy, failing rags of religious actions or moral goodness or your church background or how kind you are to people thinking that if I'm just a good person, I'll get to heaven. None of us are good in the way that God has called us to be. Guys, we must trust in Jesus alone for our salvation. So what do we learn from the brothers? Proximity to Jesus does not mean unity with Jesus. That's the first group. The second group that we're gonna unpack for a moment is the crowd. The crowd that's been following and gathering around Jesus. And here's the first thing we're gonna learn from the crowd. The first thing we learn from the crowd is this. Guys, when we serve ourselves selfishly, when we serve ourselves selfishly, we start to starve ourselves internally. Man, I feel so like Dr. Seuss this morning. I got so many rhyming things. Just don't stick me in a car for 18 hours next time with my children. I, just, I should just fly next time or something like that. But when we serve ourselves selfishly, we start to starve ourselves internally. Guys, Jesus continues the conversations with his brothers, but the subject now changes from talking about the lack of faith that his brothers have in him to the lack of faith that the crowds now have in him. Jesus says in verse seven, he says, the world cannot hate you, but it does hate me. Why? Because I testify to it that its works are evil or sinful, or they fall short of God's perfect standard. In verse six, backing up one more, Jesus says to these brothers, he says, guys, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Now guys, that phrasing, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here, was really fascinating to me in my study. Let me nerd out and hope you enjoy it, okay? Guys, Jesus is drawing a distinction here between how the crowds use their time and how Jesus uses his time. By Jesus saying, my time has not yet come, he uses the Greek word kairos, kairos for that word time, which means that the phrase he's really saying is my right time has not yet come. Meaning that how Jesus views his time is that he submits his life and his time to the will of God, the father. He uses his time. And he says, God, I want to submit my will to your right plan and your right timing for all the events of my life. And guys, wouldn't be, we be the wiser if we did the same thing with our time? We submit our will to the will of the Father. And by yet using Kairos, we see that Jesus always uses his time to serve the will of the Father. He sought the cross and not fame. He didn't seek to carry out a selfish will, but a godly one. However, when he says to his brothers and then through the brothers to the crowd, but your time is always here. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you crowd, you guys are always focused on the here and right now. It's whatever you want and whenever you want it. He's saying, you guys use your time and you make it all about you. He says, you're consumed with self. It's about your agenda, your priorities, your desires, and you never stop and consider how does God want to use your time, your talents, and your resources? Jesus is basically saying your time is always here because your time is always about you and your will. And that's why in verse seven, Jesus says to the crowds who began to hate him, what he says to them, he begins to expose their works as sinful. 
But listen, if there's anything that we learn about Jesus in the book of John, it's this. It's that when Jesus calls you out, he does it really to call you in. For when we serve ourselves selfishly, we actually start to starve ourselves internally of what we really truly need. Because guys, listen, to be honest with you, we don't know what our hearts and lives truly actually need. And he does. And when we serve ourselves rather than submit ourselves to God's good, loving leading, we don't feed ourselves when we do that. We actually starve ourselves from what we ultimately need in God. And that's why right here around a Jewish feast, Jesus tells the crowds and to you today, church, that he is the bread of life and he's the well that won't run dry, which are both descriptions of how Jesus seeks to save and secure and satisfy and steady your life. For guys, that's indeed what the crowds were looking for. The crowds themselves were looking for a status and satisfaction and security in the world. And right here, Jesus calls out their sins. And he calls them out in order to call them into a deeper, meaningful relationship with him where true status and satisfaction and security are found. Does that make sense? He calls them out to call them in. He exposes their sin in order to cover, forgive, and give them a new path. This is the loving work that God does in all of our lives. And honestly, guys, doesn't that just sound better and easier to rest in the security of God's love for you rather than trying to find it in this broken and imperfect world? Doesn't it just make more sense? Brian, it's okay. You can hand that back if you want to. <laughs> you're fine. Thanks for helping. You're fine. You're totally fine. Brian's like, do I hand this back? Do I know what to do? You did great, Brian. Thanks for leading today, buddy. You're great. Hannah, you as well. And guys, this is what Jesus is offering the crowd, something that the world cannot offer, something they're looking for in the world, but they can't offer. Jesus says, I'm the bread. I'm the only source of satisfaction. Guys, he's the only one that's truly serving you. He's caring for you and your greatest needs. For as Mark 10, 45 says that, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So church, listen, because you have been served abundantly in the gospel by Jesus laying down his life for you, may we serve out of the gospel faithfully to others. And let's use all of our time and all of our talents and all of our resources, just like Christ did. Let us have a Kairos type love where God, all of my time is yours and I wanna serve your way. And I don't want my time to just be about me and right now and right here. And that's the first thing we learn from the crowds. When we start to serve ourselves, we actually starve ourselves. We need to give ourselves over to the Lord and his leadership. Number two, the second thing that we learn from the crowd is this. When you try to put Jesus in a box, you ironically end up boxing yourself in and you end up missing the beauty of who he really is. Again, when you try to put Jesus in a box, you ironically end up boxing yourself in and you miss the beauty of who he really is. Now guys, at this point in the narrative, uh, Jesus starts to make his way back up to Jerusalem. He told the brothers, hey guys, it's not my time right now to go to Judea, but I'm gonna go. It's not my time right now, but I will end up going. Jesus starts to make his way up to Jerusalem, but everybody's already there and everybody's already talking about him and what box they think he fits in. And verse 12 tells us these boxes, here it is. 
and there was much muttering about him, verse 12, among the people. While some said, yeah, he's, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. And some even said, nope, Jesus has a demon. That's a pretty wide variety of selections for someone, right? And these boxes are the exact same boxes that C.S. Lewis wrote about in his book, Mere Christianity. Guys, the crowd tried to define Jesus on their own terms because he wasn't living up to their ideas of the Messiah. So as a result, they tried to put three, him into three false boxes. They called him a liar, a lunatic, and a moral teacher. When C.S. Lewis tells us that there's only one rightful category for Jesus, it's Lord. In fact, let me read to you what C.S. Lewis wrote. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people ought not to say about Jesus. That they accept Jesus as a moral teacher, but don't accept his claim to be God. This is one thing he says we must not say. <laughs> a man who is merely a man and says the sort of things that Jesus said would not actually be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the same level of a man who says, I'm a poached egg. Or he would be a liar and the devil of hell, he says. Or he would indeed be Lord and God. So he continues and says, so you can try to shut him up as a fool or you try to spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God as you should. And let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher for he has not left that option open to us and he did not intend to. <laughs> what a great quote. I wish I could just slay people like Lewis with just great quotes that they're like, oh, I just thank you for like stabbing me in the soul with that. I just, I'm not like that. But what Lewis and this scripture reveals to us is this. Again, when you try to put Jesus in a box, you ironically end up boxing up yourself and you miss the beauty of who Jesus really is. And guys, that's what happens to all of us. When you start making demands of Jesus, you start putting him in a box. Jesus, give me a trouble-free life. Give me romance. Give me perfect kids. Give me more money. Give me comfort. Please give me healing. Give me success. But then you start dismissing Jesus in your life when he doesn't live up to your idea of who you want him to be. He didn't stay in that box. He didn't do what you wanted him to do because maybe he was doing something greater. And see, church, do you see how backwards it really is? How that's putting Jesus in a box rather than living in the joy and glory of God's plan for you? So church, let's not be like the crowd, okay? Let, let's not start labeling and dismissing Jesus when he doesn't meet your expectations. Let's trust that he indeed is the Lord of all of life. And if Lord, then what he does is both for our ultimate good and his utmost glory. Guys, in fact, here comes the cheesy part. In fact, when I was a kid, I used to play this game called Perfection. Let me show you this picture if you don't know this game. This game is also called a heart attack for children, a heart attack for children. Really rough, okay? If you don't know this game, here's what you try to do. You would take 25 various shaped pieces and you would try to put them into the corresponding shaped spaces and you had to do it in 60 seconds. 
The goal was to try to get every piece in the right spot and then turn off the timer before the game board would bounce up, throw all the pieces in the air and scare the living soul out of you. And so I loved this game as a kid. Something was wrong with me, I'm sure. I loved this game. And so I was teaching this game to my daughters a few months back and it was going well. Timer was on, it was ticking down. They got about 15 pieces in and there was this cross piece that they tried to fit into a square space. And they were getting nervous because the time was ticking. They're like, daddy, give us more time. Like, it's up to the game. Like, I, I can't. And they're trying to get this cross thing into the square hole and they're like freaking out. And it took them forever. And it didn't go so well because in the teaching of the game, <laughs> I neglected to mention the whole timer thing, the whole buzzer thing, the whole piece of shooting into the air thing. <laughs> so as they were struggling with this cross piece and all the nervousness is rising because the timer's going faster, the board ran out of time, went to the buzzer, the piece is shot up in the air and it scared the soul out of my children. And it was the greatest moment. They're like, dad, I had no idea this was gonna happen. I was like, I'm so sorry, I didn't tell you. It was a great moment. Now, other than being a bad dad, I learned something else (laughs) during that moment. I learned something valuable about playing that game with them. And that's this. In life, you and I try often to do the very same thing that my daughters were trying to do. We're trying to fit the cross-shaped piece of Jesus into the square spaces and areas of our life. And it just doesn't work. You say, Jesus, uh, just give me a spouse, put this in my life and just give me a job and give me more money and give me more comfort. And we use them like a genie or a vending machine. I put in my prayer quarter and I should get this from you. And I'm actually the master and you do what I say. We're trying to fit Jesus into our lives rather than revolve our life around the goodness of Jesus. But as we see in this text, you can't fit Jesus into your life. You're gonna, you're gonna box him in. You're going to miss the beauty of who he is. And listen, here's the cheesy part. If we use this game of perfection as a model, then here's what we're going to see happen. Next picture here. What we're seeing going to happen is that it's going to flip. We can, though, fit a square-shaped piece of our lives, every square piece of our lives, and it does fit into the cross-shaped space of Christ where Jesus is Lord and we find our life in him. So rather than trying to fit Jesus into our life, we take our life and we put it into Jesus and it fits, it makes sense. And this is how it was designed to be. One of the silliest kid analogies of all time, but I hope this helps you. Don't let your life just explode in front of you because you're panicking, trying to get the wrong things to fit and you're anxious and you're scared and you're worried and you start barking at your spouse and you're just trying to fit Jesus in to make your life work for you. But when you take your life and you say, Jesus, whatever mine is yours, I trust your will with however it unfolds. I take the square of my life and I entrust myself to you. Will you guide me and walk with me? And you will then notice a peace and a comfort that happens. The crowds were trying to figure out what box Jesus went in, but they needed to go into him to trust who he is and what he's done for them on the cross. Does that make sense? Let's see Jesus who for he truly is. He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He is truly the Lord of everything we need. Lastly, we come to the third group, the religious leaders. 
And here's what they're seeking. They're seeking salvation, salvation. The main thing we learn from the religious leaders is this. The place where you are offended by Jesus the most is the place where you need to resist Jesus the least. Now, listen, I'm not saying, of course, listen, I'm not saying that you should ever resist Jesus, okay? I'm not saying that. But what I am saying that when you're most angry or you're most upset or you're most offended at Jesus' teaching or whatever the case may be, when you're most offended at Jesus the most, that's probably where you need to resist him the least because that anger, that frustration at whatever his law is or his command is probably rubbing up against something in your heart And if you were to choose Jesus' ways or your ways, I encourage you to always pick Jesus' ways. It's always for your good, always. Even if it goes against the initial desires that you have. So let me show you where I'm finding that in the text. Verses 14 through 19. Jesus now at the feast, in the middle of the feast, Jesus goes up to the temple. Because remember, he's the word of God. Where's the word of God? It's in the temple of God. Jesus eventually will be the temple that is, he's the sacrifice in the temple for us. And then now the Holy Spirit resides in us. And then we become the temple of God. And Jesus leading us in that direction. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple as the word of God. And he began teaching And the Jews were marveled. And they're like, this man has this incredible learning when he's never studied. It's like these like like super prolific guys that like fail out of college and then they go and create some uh, amazing company. And they're like, how did you know all this stuff? It's kind of like Jesus. He didn't go to school for all this. How does he have all this learning? And so Jesus answered them, hey guys, my, my teaching is not my own, but it's his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether this teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority, man, he seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him, he's gonna be true. And in him, there's gonna be no falsehood. And then Jesus slays them. He starts pointing something out to them. He starts offending them in order to give them something they need. He says, has not Moses given you guys the law? yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Basically, you're the ones at fault. You're punishable underneath the law. Man, so there Jesus is in the middle of this huge party, a thousand people, which we'll get to the purpose of the feast again next week. He's boldly preaching in the temple in front of thousands of people. And he just starts calling out the Jewish leaders in front of everybody. He's telling them that number one, that he is sent from God the Father, unlike the Jewish leaders. He teaches that God's glory is what he's pursuing, unlike the Jewish leaders. And then number three, he calls out their sin of breaking God's law that God gave through Moses. And guys, on the surface, you might be like, wow, Jesus, you, aren't you being just a bit harsh here? But as we saw earlier, no, he's calling them out in their sin so that he can call them into salvation. But sadly, they reject Jesus because they're just offended. They don't like being called out. They like the comfort of their rules and their private sins. And they let their feelings get in the way of Jesus seeking to speak truth and love to them. Guys, listen, I am incredibly grateful for the doctors my parents have in Asheville, North Carolina. One of the hardest things that I had to watch for my mom was when the doctors came in multiple times and just kept telling us the bad news of where the cancer was in her body. 
doctor came into the room and basically saying, hey, listen, this is kind of kind of upend everything. We found some test results and here's what we found and started to go through. She's got eight places of cancer in the brain. She's got cancer in her liver. She's got cancer in her spine. She's got cancer in her hip. We've got to do radiation. We've got to start a cancer medication. We've got to do all of these things and we don't know how much time is left. That was some of the worst news I could hear. The worst news though set us up for the good news. The good news is that, hey, we can aim for longevity and good quality if we can take these steps and start doing these things, but you've got to be ready to take radiation. You've got to take these things in your body that are not natural there, but you, you need them for your good. Are you willing to take those steps? And we are so grateful that the cancer that was inside my mom was exposed so that it could get treated. Guys, that's exactly what Jesus does with us. He exposes the cancer of sin that exists in all of us. And he's not trying to condemn us in that sin, but he's trying to expose it. Why? So he can bring it up to the surface and then cure it. Wherever we're turning to, to find life or value, he's trying to call it out so we can cure it and say, I'm the place where you find love and meaning and value and life. And that's what the Pharisees are just missing. Jesus calls out, hey, you think the law is gonna save you? You love the law of Moses and you think it's gonna give you salvation if you obey it? And Jesus calls it out and says, you're not obeying it because salvation is not found through obeying the law. It's found through trusting in Jesus who obeyed the law on our behalf. And then he gives us the credit like we obeyed it ourselves. Does that make sense? He's calling us out to call us in. And guys, I wanna be honest with you. Jesus is gonna offend you the same way. He's going to come into the doctor's room of your life and he may sit down with you in the quietness of your heart and he might start exposing the cancer of some sins in your life. And I urge you, don't reject him. When you start feeling convicted of sin, it's not condemnation. Go through the discomfort of God calling out certain things that you believe or think or practice that sin because he's trying to draw you to something better. Let him expose it. You're like, I can sleep with whoever and I can do whatever with my money and I can look at whatever online. I can believe whatever I want to. I can love who I want. I can be whoever I want to be. And Jesus wants to step into that place and lovingly sit down with you and expose those areas that will end up hurting you. He wants to expose them in order to cure them. And so Jesus, my friends, if you're reading his scriptures, he will offend you. He will call you to change. He will challenge you. He will expose what's wrong. But it's like that doctor to my mom that gave us a chance for a better life, a longer life. That is what Jesus is seeking to do. But he seeks to give you eternal life by exposing your sin, helping you trust in Jesus for your salvation. And then he wants you to keep trusting for your satisfaction and security in him. Does that make sense? So guys, at our church, we're always gonna preach what the Bible says. There's gonna be things that are wonderful and loving and true and it feels warm. And sometimes it's gonna feel like I stabbed you. Why would you say that to me? That's not popular in our culture these days. And those moments are gonna happen. But I want you to see that it's God's word exposing things so he can cure things in your life and heart. Does that make sense? So let me ask you this question. What if your personal right now, what if your greatest offense with Jesus 
is actually preventing you from the greatest joy he's seeking to bring you. What if that area of sin that you're rejecting to give over to him, what if by you not fighting back against that sin and giving over to it, what if by doing that, you're missing out on something that Jesus really wants to give you? Guys, the religious leaders were looking to the law to save them when only the love of Jesus through his death on the cross could actually save them. Guys, trusting that Jesus's ways are good, even when we don't like them, is one of the hardest callings in the Christian life. Guys, we don't know why certain things happen the way they do and why things are so hard for us or why some people don't get healed or why sometimes relationships don't get better or why certain desires don't get met. Sometimes we don't know and trusting God's ways when we don't know is some of the hardest things we can do with our life. But guys, Jesus is calling you to trust in his words and his ways. And he promises that his commands are for your good and for your flourishing. So the question is again, will you trust in him when you're offended? When your feelings are hurt, when he calls something out in your life? Will you say, well, look, at every, in culture, everyone believes this. Or we say, what does Christ believe? What does he have for me? Culture didn't create you. Christ did. What's the blueprint that he has for your life? And do you trust it? Even if it goes against the grain of your desires. Church family, Jesus is the true wisdom sent from heaven who speaks in the temple. He speaks to us today. And just as he taught in the temple, then he teaches us through the scriptures now. And when we turn and trust in him, we find what these three groups of people were ultimately looking for. We find the significance that his brothers were searching for and riches, fame, and success. In Christ, you find the satisfaction that the crowds were searching for through the feeding of the 5,000. And in Christ, you will find the salvation that the religious leaders were searching for through the law, but you find it by trusting in Jesus, obey the law on your behalf so you can be found righteous in God's eyes. So we conclude where Jesus does in verse 29. He says, let us judge with right judgment about who he is. Let us judge that Jesus is indeed the salvation, the satisfaction, the significance that our hearts are truly searching for. And let's turn to the cross of Jesus so that those realities purchased for us on the cross can be enjoyed in him now and forever. Let's judge Jesus rightly and receive who he truly is. Let's pray.